two women stood before the king of Israel. The Hebrew Bible tells us that they were prostitutes. A squirming newborn was placed before the king. Both women claimed that the baby was theirs, and it was up to the king to choose which of them was the actual mother. But how to figure that out? The king called for his sword. Standing above the infant child, he pronounced his solution. He would cut the baby in two and give each half to each woman that they might share. One of the women cried out for the other woman to be given the baby to spare the child. The second woman supported the king, for if she could not have her own child, then it would be better off dead. The threat of the sword was just a ruse from the wise King Solomon. He now knew who the true mother was. It was the woman who would rather see her baby raised by another than dead. The Book of Kings recorded the Israelites' response. When all Israel heard the decision that the king had rendered, they stood in awe of the king, for they saw that he possessed divine wisdom to execute justice. The year was about 970 BCE, the place Jerusalem. King Solomon had succeeded his father, King David, as ruler of the united Israelite monarchy. Like his father before him, Solomon was favored by the Israelite national god, and this enabled him to do great things. But also like David, he too fell into sin. His punishment would change the course of Jewish history. In the meantime, King Solomon presided over the golden age of the Israelite monarchy, when the nation supposedly achieved its peak wealth and influence and grandeur. But what Solomon is perhaps best known for is his singular contribution to Israelite religion, the building of a temple in Jerusalem to house the Ark of the Covenant, which held the presence of God on earth. Solomon's temple would stand for the next 400 years and be a lasting symbol for the Jews for the next 3,000. That's today's topic. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So who was King Solomon? Unlike his father, King David, we've never found Solomon's name inscribed anywhere outside the Hebrew Bible. So we can't say for sure that he really existed, although most scholars generally accept that he did. Solomon was the second king of the Davidic dynasty, and he reigned at the height of the United Monarchy, the great era of Jewish history that lasted just a century. Bigger than the question of whether Solomon really existed was the extent to which he ruled over an enormously wealthy and powerful united monarchy as depicted in the Hebrew Bible. It's one of the great debates in Jewish history and inspires a lot of heated arguments. Did the united monarchy under kings Saul, David, and Solomon really exist around the year 1000 BCE? Or were these guys just small-time kings ruling over not much more than the little city of Jerusalem? And if it did exist... Was it just a small kingdom, or a really big one? Over the last hundred years or so, archaeologists have dug up lots of buildings throughout Israel, which seem to date to King Solomon's time. But in recent years, scholars have been rethinking whether these structures actually date to a later time period, and are therefore not associated with Solomon. And the prime example is what we know as the Six-Chambered Gate. Okay, so in ancient times, you had these major Canaanite cities of Megiddo, Chazor, and Gezer, all of whose ruins still exist today. Eventually, the Israelites took over these cities, and the Bible says that Solomon rebuilt them. 
Archaeologists found that all three cities had the exact same type of gate, built at the same time. It's called the six-chambered gate because of the six rooms, which were attached to the gate, probably used by guards. The gates were dated to the time of Solomon, so voila! Scholars concluded that the archaeological evidence backed up the account in the Bible. But it's more than that. If Solomon was able to build three huge gates in three separate cities located relatively far apart, that meant that his kingdom had the wealth, size, and organization to pull off such a technological feat. In other words, it was big. So that was a huge point in favor of the united monarchy. But in the last few decades, some scholars have questioned the dating of those gates, putting them a hundred years later or so. That is, Solomon didn't build them. It doesn't mean that the United Monarchy didn't exist, but it does kind of put us back to square one in terms of lacking hard evidence that it was a major kingdom. But this is a hotly debated area with historians lined up on all sides, so I think it's safe to say that the jury is still really out. But what's the point? I mean, why do we care about this debate? Well, the United Monarchy is the golden era of the ancient Jewish historical experience, and King Solomon was central to it. It's not just that the Israelites had their own kingdom, which is nice, but it's really that for the first time in history, this area was a reflection of Israelite culture, religion, politics, and power, all of which, according to the Bible, reached its zenith under Solomon. So we have a great interest in knowing as much as we can about this era, even if the true history is one in which the Israelite kingdom was quite smaller than described in the Bible. Because of all the things to know about King Solomon, the most important is the impact he had on the city that he ruled, Jerusalem. Back in the late 900s BCE, Jerusalem was just a small town of some 1,500 or 2,000 people, nestled into a slope on the side of a mountain, just below where the old city is located today. We call this place the City of David, for it's where King David made his capital, and more importantly, brought Yahweh to dwell. David brought the Ark of the Covenant there, the gold box containing the Ten Commandments, the vessel in which the Israelite God made his presence appear on earth. David placed it in a tent next to the Gihon Spring, the ancient well which provided the city with life-giving water. It was a sign of approval from God that David was blessed, Jerusalem was blessed, and that this was the rightful place for the Israelite capital city. It fell to Solomon to build a house for God, a permanent structure to hold the ark in Yahweh's presence. The Bible tells us that David had too much blood on his hands to be allowed to build such a sacred structure. Solomon, though, had permission to begin the expansion of Jerusalem, the early kernels of which today are the old city. He advanced the city up the slope to the top of the mountain. There he built an acropolis, the royal complex that held the temple to Yahweh and Solomon's palace and government. This temple was an impressive structure, but austere, and not nearly as big as you might think. The temple was about 90 feet long and 30 feet wide and about 45 feet high. There was very little decoration on the outside, and what was inside was reserved just for the priests. The public had to worship in the various courtyards that surrounded the temple. They could never go inside, for that was getting too close to the dwelling place of God. Solomon moved the Ark of the Covenant from its place in the city of David to a special room built inside the temple, called the Holy of Holies. This was the innermost sanctuary, the connection point between heaven and earth, the place where Yahweh's presence appeared upon the Ark itself, 
a sight utterly forbidden to behold. This small little room is the linchpin between heaven and earth. From here we can communicate with the presence that controls the universe. The Holy of Holies became the single most sacred site in the Jewish religion, and remains so to this day. Okay, side note. Most people think that the Western Wall is the holiest site, but that's not actually the case. Now this is getting way ahead of ourselves, but the wall was built some 900 years after Solomon's Temple. It's a remnant of the second temple complex that was built above Solomon's, which is today's Temple Mount in the Old City. What makes the wall sacred is that when you're standing there, that's as close as you can physically get to where the Holy of Holies is thought to have stood, which is about where the Golden Dome of the Rock is today. And of course, the closer you are to the Holy of Holies, the more sacred is the ground beneath your feet, and that's what makes the wall so important. But let's go back to the 900s. From a few hundred yards down the mountain in the city of David, you would climb up the stairs that led to the holy complex, with each step getting closer to the divine. In Hebrew, this word is aliyah, meaning to rise or to go up. In its modern context, it means to immigrate to Israel. It's both an idea and a description. Not only are you uplifting your soul by immigrating to the Jewish homeland, but you physically drive from the airport on the coast to Jerusalem up in the mountains. And here we find Aliyah's ancient origin, the literal ascension up the mountain from the city of David to Solomon's temple. The biblical scholar Carol Myers talks about the profound symbolism and earthly purpose of the temple. Just as God ruled from a throne in a heavenly abode, she writes, so divine presence and power emanated from an earthly structure, a temple. She goes on to note that the temple was the primary visual representation of the divine election and sanction of the king who built it and of his dynastic successors. In other words, all future kings of the house of David will benefit from being associated with what David and Solomon built here. Carol Myers points out that the temple wasn't just telling the Israelites that God favored Solomon and his kingship, it was also a message to the outside world. A visual sign, she writes, of Yahweh's sanction of the monarchy. Any visitor to the Israelite capital would see this magnificent temple. He would know that the monarch with whom this visitor dealt was backed by a powerful deity, one who had chosen to dwell with these Israelite people, an unmistakable sign of the power and wealth of the united monarchy. Now, we have this open question about just how big and powerful this united monarchy really was. So we have to ask, did Solomon's temple really exist, or is it just another mythical story from the Bible? In 1955 of our era, archaeologists discovered an ancient temple at a place called Ain Dara in northern Syria. As the temple was excavated more thoroughly in the 1980s, scholars realized that it was incredibly similar to the biblical description of Solomon's temple. Ain Dara was a bit smaller, but the layout was nearly identical. It even had a central shrine, a holy of holies, positioned in the same place as Solomon's temple. And according to the Biblical Archaeology Society, Ain Dara was covered in carvings of lions, cherubim, and floral patterns, the same decorative elements that the Hebrew Bible lists for the temple. 
But what's really interesting is that Ain Dara was built before the temple in Jerusalem, probably sometime around 1300 BCE, and it was used for more than 500 years, until the 700s BCE. That means it was still around during the Israelite era. Some scholars have therefore argued two things. One, that the architects of Solomon's temple clearly knew the temple at Ain Dara, and may even have been the same people who built it. And two, that the temple in Jerusalem can't have been a myth, because it represents too closely Near Eastern sacred architecture during this era for someone to have invented the idea centuries later. But that still leaves us with problems. As the biblical historian Carol Myers points out, although a few structures and artifacts have been found from this era in Jerusalem, not much can be definitively identified as being specific to the time of David and Solomon. And what we do have, she points out, doesn't reflect the monumentality and grandeur of what David and Solomon are said to have constructed in Jerusalem. The problem is that Jerusalem has changed substantially over thousands of years. Newer buildings replaced the older ones, even down to the foundations, and ancient conquerors destroyed whatever was left or carried it back to their own countries as spoils. So it's really hard to find stuff dating back to Solomon's time. The biggest problem when it comes to Solomon's temple is that we know where it was, or at least where in theory it should be, but we can't get there to look. Solomon built his royal Acropolis with the temple on top of the mountain above Jerusalem, which is exactly where the Temple Mount is today, the gold dome of the rock and the western wall. In fact, the Temple Mount is there because it was built as a reconstruction of Solomon's temple. Now, Solomon's Acropolis was much smaller than today's. What you see today in the old city was built about 900 years later, and this gets back to our archaeological problem. In theory, Solomon's temple, if any of it still exists, sits directly underneath the gigantic platform holding up the Dome of the Rock, behind the western wall. But no archaeology is allowed on such a holy site, so no one has ever been able to dig down to see what's there. There's no doubt that an Israelite temple really did exist on this spot, but scholars argue a lot about when and under whom it was built. Some stick with Solomon, but others argue that it was actually built a few hundred years later under a different king named Josiah. Josiah then backdated the temple to Solomon in order to make himself look like the natural heir of the great Israelite leaders. We'll get to Josiah in a few episodes. He's one of the most important kings that you've never heard of. But for our purposes, we're going to stick with King Solomon as the builder of the temple because he's the one credited with expanding Jerusalem into the area of today's old city. And frankly, it makes a lot of sense that he really was the one to have built the first temple on this spot. Because the temple was more than just a place to worship the Israelite God. It was a huge step on the road to Judaism. After several hundred years, the Israelites worshipping their gods, plural, in highly localized ways, within their own families or at small cultic shrines, they finally had a central temple for centralized worship of a central national god, Yahweh. This was a major step towards monotheism, the foundation of Judaism today, and it explains why the first temple was so important. But we're not there yet. Indeed, we're still centuries away from monotheism. The biblical account of the building of a temple was written when the Israelites were much further along the journey, so they make it seem like this had been the governing ideology back in Solomon's time, but it wasn't. 
The Israelites had already taken one big step towards monotheism when they combined their national god, Yahweh, with the Canaanite god, El, and then just stuck with the name Yahweh. The temple marked another big step, although it would take several more centuries until it became apparent. What we're seeing is an evolution towards monotheism, which became the core of the Jewish religion. The time when Yahweh was not just the god worshipped at the temple, but the only god worshipped at the only temple. Solomon built the single most important structure in Jewish history, but he didn't know it yet. In fact, he would have been a bit bewildered by the notion that the Israelites, later the Jews, worshipped only Yahweh. And that's because the Israelites at this stage are still what we call henotheistic. That is, we worship this god Yahweh above all the others, but we still have others. Some historians say that actually it was more another fancy word, monolatry which is, we only have Yahweh as our God, but we don't deny that there are other gods, and it's cool that other people worship them. So this henotheistic system was a good system for Solomon, because he had a lot of foreign wives, which meant that he had a bunch of foreign gods running around his kingdom who needed to be worshipped. How many wives? The Bible says 700, which seems, I don't know, just a bit high. To keep them happy, he built temples and shrines to their various male and female gods. And as we'll see in a minute, it was this, according to the Bible, that would be his downfall. In the meantime, we do know that the temple in Jerusalem wasn't the only game in town. A few decades after Solomon's death, a temple was built at a place called Mozah, just a few miles from Jerusalem. It was discovered in 2012, and guess what it looks like? Yep the Ain Dara temple in Syria, and the biblical description of Solomon's temple. It's likely that the builders of the same architectural tradition built all three places, which isn't that strange. This is a very popular design for temples that came out of the Syrian region during this time. The temple at Mozah is smaller than Solomon's, but still pretty significant. And scholars have argued that this wasn't a rival temple, but a complementary one. It was so close to Jerusalem, still within the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, that the authorities surely not only knew about it, but permitted it. Even more, archaeologists found artifacts and figurines at the Mozart Temple which suggest that gods other than Yahweh worshipped there. It was an astounding find, because it tells us that the temple in Jerusalem wasn't the only official site of worship, even around Jerusalem, and even in later centuries when the king struggled to consolidate the worship of Yahweh exclusively to Jerusalem. The temple at Mozart really upends our past assumptions about the road to monotheism and adds a layer of fascinating new complexity to our understanding of the Israelite religious system. The biblical account of King Solomon was written centuries after his death, at a time when the kings of Israel were struggling to make a big push towards monotheism. Because of that, they were actively working to denigrate the worship of other gods besides Yahweh, and also trying to consolidate that worship at the temple in Jerusalem. At the same time, the biblical writers knew something that we're going to find out about the next episode, that the Israelite kingdom broke in two shortly after Solomon's reign. And so the Bible gives us a reason why the kingdom fell apart. Although Solomon was a great, wise, and enormously wealthy king who brought glory to all Israel and built the temple, he had sinned against God by allowing and then enabling idolatry. 
All those foreign wives with their foreign gods proved irresistible to the Israelite king. The book of Kings tells it plainly. In his old age, his wives turned away Solomon's heart after other gods, and he was not as wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. For sinning against God, there must be punishment, and God was clear about the consequences. Solomon would lose his kingdom. For the sake of David, said God, it wouldn't happen in Solomon's lifetime, but as soon as he died, his kingdom would be split. Now, God had chosen both the line of David and the city of Jerusalem, so the biblical writers, who were recording all this under a Davidic king while sitting in Jerusalem, they couldn't allow the kingdom to fall apart completely. So God tells Solomon that his son would be given one tribe to rule over, to preserve the line of David and the centrality of Jerusalem. But all the rest will be given to someone else. It was an elegant theological explanation for a great catastrophe. For after 40 years as king, at the age of 60, Solomon died in the year 931 BCE. Within a few years, his kingdom would indeed split apart, and the golden age of Israelite history, the united monarchy, brought to wealth and fame by kings David and Solomon, would be no more, never to rise again. King David gets credit for making Jerusalem the Israelite capital and for bringing the Ark of the Covenant there, and so for good reason his name will be forever linked to Judaism's holiest city. But his son, Solomon, is the leader who expanded the city and built the single most important structure in Jewish history, the First Temple. Under Solomon, the Israelites took a major step closer to the Judaism we have today, but it wasn't to last. In the early 900s, under the reign of King Rehoboam, Solomon's son and David's grandson, the united monarchy split in two. The kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital at a city called Samaria, and a smaller kingdom in the south, the kingdom of Judah, with the capital remaining at Jerusalem. It was the start of a new era in Jewish history. As always, I'm at jewautonow.com, and my email is jewautonowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.